So you like bold red wine most of the time With notes of fig and raisin You like a cold brew and pitching horseshoes As the sun is fading You like football games and dishing out nicknames The Godfather's one and two But not so fast, we got a podcast We like that too we like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. Hey, Bon Vivants, welcome back to the We Like That Too podcast. I am Brad Jones, and joining me is the main man, the head Bon Vivant himself, Mr. Keith and Lou. I wasn't sure what you were going to say when you said main. I wasn't sure where you were going with that. So. I wasn't either. I had a brain fart I've called there. a main a lot of things, so I wasn't sure where you were going. Welcome back, everybody. Great to have you on the show again. We're on the road again. We're on the road. We're to back. Willie hey, Nelson. We really hope you enjoyed our uh, Nashville uh, yeah, show. Yeah, there's more to come. So uh, We're going to do that again. Yeah, we we had way too much fun down there to not yeah. go back. and, yeah. and It took to, a little while to recover from that trip, actually. <laughs> well, so. you know what we had to do? We had to go all the way to Key West to do that. So uh, we went to Key West. That's and, a whole other story. That's, a, that's another yeah, whole yeah. podcast right there. But we got a great one today that you and I have been uh, excited am, about am, for a while. I've been very, very excited about Tell that. Tell us all about about it. He doesn't remember, but I was the entertainment chairman, actually, at the J.C. Cole County Fair in yes. Jefferson City. Yes. And so I actually hired this duo. I'm sure they don't remember, <laughs> but I, I am going to have a big reveal here in a few minutes okay. that uh, right. will, will uh, spark your imagination. And, right. uh, but we are thrilled to have half of one of the uh, absolute finest uh, folk duos of the 70s and 80s, yep. Mr. Yep. Tom Shipley of Brewer and Shipley. Yeah. And we are in his home. Yeah, Tom, thank you so much. Well, it's good to be here at my age. It's good to be in. <laughs> well, you're looking great, Tom, and I'll tell you, you know, uh, probably your most iconic hit certainly is uh, One Toke Over the Line, and we'll talk about that a little later, but you help make the music of our youth, and so we really appreciate that, and we appreciate you having us into your home and hosting this, so welcome to the show. Like I said, it's good to be anywhere. It's good to see you guys, and uh, it's nice that you could do this down here. Yeah, we want to talk a lot about... Uh, you know, I'm always curious about musical influence, how you got started in music overall, and then into the business. But uh, before we do that, we probably should keep things in order, don't you think? Well, Keith, that's your main job is to it keep, is my keep, main keep, job. keep the the show orderly. And so, you know, Keith's philosophy is we can't drink through the whole show if we don't start early. So, <laughs> <laughs> and you said that you're a you're a white wine guy. Yes, and, I am. And yeah. so. We brought one down, and we haven't tried this one yet, Keith. So this is a little. No, but I'm anxious. This is a little scary. We are both big fans of white burgundy, which white burgundy is actually a white pinot noir, and this is French. So I'm. You worked on your French, right? This is Bourgogne. It is Bourgogne. It's the way it's pronounced, but that's just, you know, with the French labels, it's just areas. It's just appellations. That's all that means. Burgundian wine is another region. The white burgundies actually can take a couple of different shapes. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you have Chablis, you have Chardonnays, you have Pinot Noirs or White Pinots, um, even some Sancerre or uh, 
Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc, yeah. yes. Depending on how they're uh, harvested and fermented and all that kind of stuff. So what did you learn about this one? This is from a young man. He's Well, he, he was born in 75, Benjamin LaRue. And any relation to Lash LaRue? I don't think he was any relation to Lash LaRue. He, uh, he actually has a really uh, distinctive uh, work career. If yeah. you look at it, I mean, he worked for Louis Jadot. Yeah. He worked at uh, Domaine Druin in Oregon. Yeah. They, know a, quite a they know a little bit about, uh, yeah. He was in New Zealand. And <laughs> I don't know what he. I don't think he had a great experience when he worked in New Zealand. Well, but, but you always learn something anywhere anyway. you go. So. But yeah, he went to ag. He went to ag school, and he knew growing up in Boeing. No, it's not right. It's Boone. Boone. Boing. Boing. Sounds like a cartoon. It's Sound not. Effect. You know where it is. That's Boing in in France, and that is the, that is a Burgundy. That's an area of Burgundy. And he also worked for the Comte Armand in Poma, which looks like Pomard, but it's Poma. If you say so. I do. <laughs> so anyway, but he's got his own place now. Still a young guy. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so this is an absolutely oh, – The nose on this is unbelievable. Time it is. Yeah. Gorgeous. So, so beautiful dark straw color. Boy, nice like, translucency, looks like a but fall, really fall a, harvest. It does. It? It's a gorgeous yellow, and the nose just oh, just jumps out at you. It does. What are you getting off of it, Tom? Well, I'm uh, I'm getting this is the most fragrant of uh, the white wines that I've tried, and it's nice and dry. It is, it is very nice, nice and dry. dry. It's got a little bit in the back of the palate, yeah. and uh, this is exactly when I want a white. Burgundy, this is exactly what it should taste like. You know, one of the things that I read about white burgundies, Brad, that uh, sommeliers, when people tell them they don't like white wines or Chardonnays, they will give them a white burgundy, and it makes a believer out of them. It changes a lot of people's minds. About well, white traditionally, wine. the white burgundies are not they're not real oaked. They're not real oaky like some of the Chardonnays. Yeah. I don't like oak. He likes his oak, but well, I, I don't care for them. All things within but, reason. Yeah, right? but these are usually uh, aged in stainless steel. Yeah. And or concrete. Or concrete. Yeah. Some of them are still put in uh, oak barrels, but this they're one. They're not really aged. They're I more finished a lot of times. They're finished. Oak, and so that, it's a light, a very right. light uh, effect. This is crisp and clean. I tell you what, I drink this all day. I would this, is a, this is a really good white. Do you like it, Tom? Is this your kind Oh, that's extremely good. Yeah, minerality, good minerality on it, but yep. not that you know, not that licking a chalkboard type of thing, right? I've got to say, I don't know if I've actually had this wine, you know, white burgundy. You, next time you're in your favorite liquor store, find out if they've got some white burgundies. There, there's usually in some of the liquor stores, there's not a big selection. Yeah, uh, right. and sometimes you have to ask for them. But we get ours from Barvino, Barvino. our bottle sponsor in beautiful downtown Jefferson City. Yes, we and, do. Uh, this is a great. Great find for us because yes. we had not tried this one before. No, and I'm glad we found oh. it. We, we're, we're sharing this with you, Tom, for That's the first good. time. Now, so. this one runs about $37. That's one of the things that you have to, to watch for. They go up in prices, they go up in, in rarity and quality of the grape and accessibility. So it is a supply and demand thing. 
but you don't have to pay a lot for a good white burgundy. No. Go out there and seek them out. I think I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thank you, Matt Green at Barvino. For Benjamin LaRue. Benjamin and, LaRue. Uh, and look him up. He's got Borgon. a he's got a very interesting story. So. And they do reds too. He does a red yes. he does reds yes, also. Yes, he does. Yeah. But meanwhile to the topic of the day. Back back to our, our guest. I thought the topic of the day was wine. <laughs> and you guys just came from Nashville, right? You know, here's the funny part about that. We've had a couple of our guests that uh, we hardly almost didn't get around to them because they are big wine people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they'll Jim, talk wine all yeah, day. With yeah, you. Jim Burris. I, I thought you know he talked wine with us. He's he's a big shot out in uh, New York in in the uh, recording business actually. So well, and from Jeff City. Well, you said you guys uh, just got back from Nashville, mm-hmm. and Michael and I did our our last album. Uh, Welcome to Riddle Bridge was done in Nashville. The only time we've ever done anything in nashville and we learned to spell nash we you know the n n a s h we put a g in front of the n so it's <laughs> it's still nashville but it has a different different take Get nashville yeah, yeah like well, there gnashing of teeth yeah yeah there used to be a, a restaurant uh right in the heart of the music uh area there uh called julian's and it was a great french restaurant but it was just packed full of music industry people every night yeah and uh and it was expensive restaurant but our producer who uh, oh my goodness he's played on everybody's his name was norbert putnam and uh at that particular time uh we he'd take us to lunch or to dinner that is and norbert was doing very well he'd been in elvis's band and all that stuff and uh he'd order wine too much uh <laughs> for for drinking wine for dinner i remember one night it was uh there was a bottle of white and a bottle of red a bottle of chateau lafitte and a bottle of chateau margot 69 oh well, my goodness that's yeah nothing like going to the mountaintop there yeah, and i remember one night uh norbert uh, i think he screwed up his leg he was in a cast and of course, all the waiters there knew it because he was ordering big, well, sure, and bringing lots of people in, and probably a great tipper. Oh yeah, but uh, at one point he leaned back. He had a glass of wine, and he leaned back and fell on the on his back. You know, his chair went over, and he's laying there on the ground with his glass. And the waiter comes by. He's Mr. Putnam, and he pours. He fills up his glass. <laughs> That's and, a professional right there. And That's right. Michael and I were playing the uh, Exit Inn that night and uh, got fed up with Nashville. And I, I wrote a song that I or gave to Michael in the dressing room, and we did it on stage. And it went, uh, I'm down to my last, my last for Mercedes, and the rent on my wife's coming due. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm walking the line in three-quarters time and doing the Julian's Blues. Tried to shake off all dinner, but the price of the wine was too high. I walked on the tab and jumped in a cab and kissed all this blank blank goodbye. You can say it. We're not. We're not a radio show. And then the refrain was BS. Yeah, it's the same old Tennessee waltz, the one, <laughs> the one they've been singing for years. Did that get recorded? No, no, we didn't. Oh, we I'd just, love to hear that. We just did it at the club in Nashville. Yeah. as we did it. You should resurrect that. I bet there are guys today who would record that in a heartbeat. You might think about that. Yeah, yeah. 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 pull that out of the drawer and say, "Hey, send it down yeah. to somebody in Nashville." Yeah, yeah we were just uh, 
uh, down on the North Fork uh, of the White River uh, at a an Oktoberfest in November. Yeah. yeah. And uh, a friend of mine, Buddy Mondlock, was there. And Buddy's a Nashville guy, songwriter. And uh, it was good to see him. And, and he likes Nashville. I, Just from a professional standpoint, I had a bad time there. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's different now. This is a long time ago. Yeah, it's changed a lot. And, you know, uh, Brad and I even talk about that. Nashville... As a tourist or as a visitor, I compare it a lot to uh, Vegas or some or New Orleans for me. Brad could live in New Orleans, I know, but you know, after about that third or fourth day, okay, and maybe it's time to go somewhere else for a while. It's it is very it has a hectic, you know, vibe oh, yeah. to it right now. Lower Broadway, you wouldn't recognize yeah. now if you haven't been down there for a while. It yeah, is just it's very crowded. It's sort of the best of times for live music and worst of times because there's more of it. There's more live places to play down there than ever before. Because oh, yeah. yeah. some of these mega these these mega clubs, they'll have three or four, three or four floors. Floors. Yeah. They have live music on every floor. And think about this, Tom. You're hiring a band at ten o'clock in the morning. They play till about two. You've got another band coming in at two. So you you think about the rotation of all the musicians that you've got in just one building down there now. Yeah. It's it's not just Tootsie's like it used to be in yeah. the old yeah. in the, in the old. <laughs> Well, well, let's get into music a little bit from Tom Shipley and then, you know, Michael Brewer when you guys got together. But how'd you get started in music? What was your first influence? Oh, I always like to know where you first picked it up. Well, well, I, I per- like the fact that you gave up the the, uh, the trumpet and went to the guitar. And yeah. I, I, <laughs> see, with both of our musicians, the, you know, we had uh, Bill White who went from the French horn. You don't pick up chicks with a French horn. No, you, know? you don't. Yeah. <laughs> And that's why I picked up a guitar. Actually, <laughs> See? Uh, we, I came when I say a musical family. It's just we sang, yeah, and we would sing. Oh, just all those old camp songs and whatever in the car when I was a little kid. Yeah, in yeah. fact, listen, to my dad. That's how I learned how to sing harmony, and that's what I do in the group. I'm mostly a harmony singer, right? Yeah, that's so. That's where I started, and I was in some kind of music all the way through. School. I played trumpet when I was in high school. I had a Dixieland band, and it was really cool. We played at all the pep rallies and sure, whatever. Sure, sure. Then I went to college, and uh, the summer between high school and college, uh, a friend of mine found a guitar in his attic. And so we started messing around with that. And then I went to college, Baldwin Wallace and, uh, University, in a little small school in uh, northeastern Ohio. And it was one of the few places that Pete Seeger could play. Yeah. Uh, back when he was still, you know, blackballed, more or less. Right. And uh, I went to see Pete, and Pete told me about Woody Guthrie, and there went the farm. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, it was... Well, then Pete Seeger was considered subversive. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, sort of... Uh, underground uh, outlaw type thing you know uh but but great poet and and guitar player and folk musician so oh, pete turned us all on to music if you look at uh pete's strongest supporters when he was live it ended up being uh david crosby yeah. and uh oh, just on and on well have you heard uh bruce springsteen's uh or seen the thing the seeger sessions I have not. Oh, that's a DVD. And uh, Springsteen got together, you know, a whole bunch of musicians, and it's an album of songs we learned from Pete 
done in a real Americana kind of way. I mean, cool. there's trumpets and trombones and accordions and all kinds of stuff on we'll, it. We'll try and find the link to that and put that on the website. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, that sounds like great. something we would love. Uh, Pete yeah. really turned everybody on to, uh, oh, that's our folk music, how we all became aware sure. of folk music. Yeah. And most of the guys that made it in the 70s, musicians and whatever, the big bands, well, I used to, there was a club in Cleveland called uh, La Cave. And while I was going to college, I got my degree in earth science. That was my degree, but I was getting my apprenticeship at night going down and playing open mic night at La Cave. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I first got into it. But I met all these other people that were singing folk music that got turned on by Pete. Yeah. And it was uh, Denny Doherty. He was with a trio, came down from uh, Toronto. And there was Denny, who ended up being uh, the lead singer with the Mamas and Papas. Oh, yeah. And Zalianovsky was the other guy, one of the three guys in the uh, trio. And Zal was the guitar player with a loving spoonful. And it just went on and on. I remember running into Neil Young in uh, Toronto. Well, actually, I was playing Lacave. Ended up being the opening act for a whole bunch of the folks that came through. Bob Gibson and Josh White. And eventually uh, it was Ian and Sylvia. And Ian, they were a Canadian group. And Ian said, oh, you need to come to Toronto. And he got me a gig up there. I did the Canadian circuit for a while. Yeah. In yeah. fact, uh, first person that he introduced me to when I got to Toronto was Gordon Lightfoot. And uh, this is before Gordon had a publishing deal. He right. was just right. a musician hanging out on the street. Yeah. And uh, Neil was just singing for past that, sometimes on the street with his guitar case open. And then a new girl came uh, to town, Joni Anderson, who ended up marrying another folk singer, Chuck Mitchell. That's so Joni Mitchell. She became Joni Mitchell. Yeah. Was playing a place called the Bohemian Embassy up there. So that. Well, you're on the so you're on the the groundbreaking the cutting edge of the folk movement in well, folk in movement, American and Can- Canadian music and folk rock yeah that's and folk where, rock that's yeah. where it came from and cool a, a part of your life that I find to be the most interesting because you probably you you ran into these people they weren't big stars that you know Not back you, then. on the coffee house circuit is what you would call so where were the the hot spots that if you wanted to be known or, or recognized what in in the folk music world where were some of the the big I know some of the houses were in New York but where where did you where did you go well there was obviously the clubs in in uh, Greenwich Village. Uh, uh, the Bitter End and Cafe Wa and uh, some of those. And then uh, you start coming uh, west a little bit and you go up to Toronto and there was, uh, oh my gosh, a bunch of them in Toronto, the Purple Onion and the Riverboat and the Bohemian Embassy and Penny Farthing and uh, Village Corner Club. A bunch of them. I don't think I realized Purple Onion was in Toronto. Oh, there's there was one in L.A. Because I grew up in San Francisco. We had a Smothers Brothers album, Smothers Brothers, live at the Purple Onion. But that was in San Francisco. Oh, that was okay. So there was one in San Francisco. Yeah. Okay. But then uh, you come a little little further uh, east, and you got Cleveland, Lacave, and Lacave was oh my goodness. I think they may now be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah. But uh, La Cava, and that was my home club, everybody came through there. I mean, literally everybody that was playing all the places in, you know, essentially the village. 
mm-hmm. they came through. And once uh, they were from uh, uh, Cleveland, there was one in Detroit, but I, it never was all that hot. And then you went down to Kansas City, yeah. and there was the Vanguard, and then a little further uh, west in Denver. And I don't remember the name of that club right now. Yeah. But Denver, and then on out to uh, San Francisco. And then there were a lot of smaller, little smaller clubs sure. here and there that you could, you'd put in between, uh, you know, the, the larger clubs. Okay. So kind of a dovetail question is what years are we talking and what was the culture like both in the country and in music? That you were living. What was the lifestyle? What, what were you was living? the lifestyle? Well, uh, I'll put it this way: I I did my first joint uh, the summer of 1964, <laughs> and that was that was the lifestyle. That was kind of the beginning of the new left, if you will. Yeah, it was uh, slightly post beatnik, slightly pre hippie. Okay, it, you got that period. Yeah. So I was hanging out uh, a lot of the clubs, a lot of the smaller uh, things that became folk clubs were actually chess clubs. And there were uh, places uh, like, well, there was a place in Chicago called The Quiet Night. That was a, a town I forgot about. There was The, the Quiet Night and a couple others in uh, Chicago. Then there was oh, The Ebony Night and The Chessman and clubs like, small yeah. clubs like yeah. that, but where you could make some money. And uh, you'd travel around and, and hit those as, as well. So it was a it was the new left. It, people started getting high, yeah, and the war was starting to crank up. Right. So that got a lot of people that wouldn't have been involved in anything slightly leftist, uh, more involved kids. Yeah, you know. yeah. So that was pretty much it. It was uh, late beatnik, early hippie. So you kind of bridged the gap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a whole bunch of arts. I mean, there were theater people. There were all kinds of people, people in the arts. They were bohemians, if you will. Which I would would call myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was a Bohemia, a Bohemian community, in a way, a little bit maybe uh, like Europe, European, but not quite. Mm-hmm. So that was that's kind of was the cool. culture of the time. Very cool. So hey, mu- musically, where were you that at that point, Tom? Were you starting to write then? I mean, you're around all of these creative people uh, that you're getting a chance to, to uh, that I'm sure influenced your musicality. Yeah. Uh, was that about the time you started to really write? And is that the time you started thinking? Maybe I need to record. Where, where is my path? Yeah, well, uh, it's interesting. I, the folk thing started to die out. Folk rock was starting to come in. A lot of the people that I'd, uh, I'd known, like uh, Denny Doherty and people like that, uh, Cass Elliott, uh, who had been in a, a folk group, all of a sudden they started making it in folk rock, if you will. I was starting to watch the clubs fall in in uh, the lower 48, but I was still... I'm doing pretty well in Canada, but the clubs were starting to, you know, get thinner and thinner. And I had a bunch of friends up there, and I finally said, well, what am I going to do? I took out papers to become a landed immigrant, because if things were going to happen for me in music, I wanted to live in Canada. Mm -hmm. And uh, I decided, well, I'll give it one last shot. I'll go to uh, Los Angeles, because a whole bunch of people had gone to L.A., and that was it. I yeah. went to L.A. and uh, it took me six months to save up enough money to go out and two and a half years to save up enough money to get out. <laughs> yeah, I want to get into that in a minute, too. Yeah. But it was at that time you met Michael. Or had you guys had you guys sort of run into each other on yeah. the road, so to speak? Well, I was saying that, you know, the, the coffee houses, 
that's what was so cool because they always had a place for you to stay. Sometimes it was in the actual physical house, you know, mm-hmm. and other times they would have a crash pad. And it was kind of, uh, that's where people on the scene would hang out. I met my, Michael uh, uh, outside of Cleveland called uh, the Blind Owl. And I went down there. I'd heard about him. I went down there with some friends to see him. That's the very first time I met. I'll never forget it because uh, I told you we all, you know, knew these folkies. And mm-hmm. uh, what's the name? John, what's the name? The Mamas and Papas. Uh, John Phillips. John, John Phillips. Phillips. Yeah. We knew John because he'd been in this male folk group. Right. And he comes through. He was on his way to California with his new lady, which would be Michelle. Michelle. And it was really funny because John was sitting up, standing up against the wall. Michelle was walking around in the club and it looked like a football huddle of guys. (laughs) She was in the center just following around. And I asked Michael that. Oh, we'd both just gotten high. And uh, I remember Michael telling me, uh, yeah, I really like it, but I'd never buy any. And and I I tell that story and and he still hasn't. Yeah. But that's where I met Michael, and then uh, a while later, I was playing a place in uh, Dayton called The Lemon Tree, another little, it was in a, an art theater. Uh-huh. You know, they showed art movies, sure. and they had a club, and uh, Michael came in uh, partway through my engagement and stayed, and I didn't have anything the next week, but a lot of friends down there, so I stayed, and that's where Michael and I really got to know one another. Yeah. And then he ended up in uh, California. I ended up in California, and uh, all the people that first came to L.A. all lived in a pretty seedy area in Hollywood, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. just north of uh, Santa Monica and just east of La Brea. Well, fortunately, down on the corner for the girls that wanted to be actresses, there was uh, the Pink Pussycat. They could show their boobies. Be, you know, be seen by talent agents, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, they dance. It's now actually a stripper college. <laughs> down on the down on the corner where I used to live, yeah, but, uh, yeah, that's where everybody was trying to make it when they first yeah. came to L.A. So, so how did the partnership come about? I mean, you guys are crossing paths, you're listening to each other. How did the how did the teamwork work out? You know, because Michael had a deal, right? Yeah, it started off once again as, as songwriting. We had known each other, and I ended up living in a place just right around the corner from him on Plummer Park. Everybody was living in that area. Sure. And uh, so, you know, I knew him, and uh, I'd just gotten there, and I went over to his place a few times, and we did some picking, and we started writing some songs together. And like you said, Michael had a deal with A&M Records, their publishing company, and I had uh, been doing some writing and, and was uh, had been offered a deal with MCA. Mm-hmm. And uh, the publishers at A&M said, uh, what would you think about coming with us so you and Michael can continue to write together? So I said, sure. You know, the money was the same. We ended up being song, signed songwriters yeah. at yeah. A&M. But we both been folk singles, performers, and we enjoyed that. So we'd uh, go down to open mic night at the Troubadour mm-hmm. and uh, just sing our songs, you know, just because we wanted to sing sure, our songs sure. and build up a pretty good following. And eventually uh, the record company, they were having a hard time moving our songs because they were really stylized. And they said, why don't you do it yourself? So we did. And uh, we, that's how Bruin Shipley came about. And our right. first album Part of the songs, a part of the album was just songs that uh, were demos. The rest of them, uh, actually, we recorded up at uh, 
Leon Russell's house in the canyon, and Leon played uh, keyboards on it. Cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was so very... So tell us, how, what kind of guy was Leon? Leon is exactly who you'd think he was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He had a house up in Laurel Canyon, and you couldn't see him, or you couldn't see the, the engineer, because they didn't have the classic you know, glass walls and all that stuff. They were just rooms. In fact, when Leon played, you had to take the cat out of the... The, the one room where the piano was, or it'd be making noise. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was really funny because uh, Leon's engineer, you know, Leon's from Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and his engineer was an Okie who had a thick accent and arguably the worst stutter I've ever heard. So you'd be doing vocals, and you'd listen to the track, and all of a sudden it'd stop. And to get his first word out, you know, he'd do, do, do it again, you know. <laughs> he would. It would take forever, but it was. It was. Yeah. It was really fun. Uh, there was a. A church. We did a song called "Mass for a Lady," and there was a church out in the the valley that had a cathedral organ. Mm-hmm. Somebody had bought the church when it failed or whatever, and uh, put a recording studio in there. So they had a full-blown pipe organ, and we went in there with Leon to put organ on this. Wow! And it was. Phantom of the Opera, you know, <laughs> yeah. Leon with all his hair and whatever, sitting there at this giant console, and we listened to it, and Leon said, sounds good. He said, I think we ought to double it. So we, we've got double pipe organs. Double pipe organ. On, on that song. So that was kind of the way yeah. the recording went there. So that's in down LA. in L.A. Yeah, down yeah. in L.A. And our band, the guys that played on the record, was uh, were essentially the Wrecking Crew. Oh, so, yeah. Wow. Yeah, we know the Wrecking Crew. That's a great documentary. Was yeah. Jimmy Messino on that, too? J- well, yeah. Jimmy, uh, actually, Jimmy lived next door to me, and uh, he ended up, he was an engineer at Sunset Sound. So he ended up uh, engineering some of the songs and playing bass on some of them. Cool. But, oh, yeah, we had Jimmy Gordon on drums. It was great. His fills sounded like somebody dumped a drum kit down the stairs, but they were all in time. <laughs> right. You know, it was just wonderful. What do you remember about these songs? Because i got them right here. you got Truly uh, Right, She Thinks She's a Woman, Time and Changes, Small Town Girl, I Can't See Her, Green Bamboo, An Incredible State of Affairs, Keeper of the Keys, Love, 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 Dreaming in the Shade, which is down in L.A., and uh, as you just mentioned, uh, Mass for a Lady. So... That was it, though. That was the very first uh, Brewer and Shipley. Uh, that was the first album, yeah. And oh, yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but here's what year the, was that, Brad? Do you have sixty-eight? The, um, sixty-eight. But here's yeah. the thing that here's the, the I got to hear about this part because you recorded this album, and then you basically gave L.A. the middle finger and said, "We're out of here." What happened? Ooh. I mean, it, it was it before this song, before this album even came out. Uh, you came to Kansas City. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> that's a, a weird, not a weird story. It's a pretty '60s story. Yeah, uh, I had been traveling back and forth. I was raised in just outside of Cleveland, right? And uh, I would go home once in a while. And I uh, had all, remember the old Volvos that had the bathtub shape to them? Yeah. You know, the yeah. Back. I had one of those in kind of a funky green. And uh, I brought all my camping gear uh, the first time I went home. And then when I was, uh, I'd camp a lot. In fact, if it wasn't, I was homeless in between gigs and stuff like that. And uh, I ended up spending a lot of time in Arizona on the Indian Reservation, well, on the mm-hmm. Hopi Reservation mostly. Uh-huh. 
and some on the Navajo Reservation, and I got really involved with the indigenous people there. And uh, when we finished the album, or were finishing the album, Michael and I decided, we looked around, we said, God, we're not Hollywood people. We were singer-songwriters. Uh, we thought of ourselves as artists, not stars. Yeah. You know, we weren't trying to be stars. You know? So we said, we're out of here as soon as we can get out of here. I finished up the, we were mixing the album. My uh, lease had run out, so I'm camped in Michael's backyard. Uh, his <laughs> lease hadn't run out. And, uh, yeah, we finished the album in uh, Michael's backyard uh, and then took off. Then I took off for the Indian reservations, and Michael was going to take off uh, a, a week later, and we were going to rendezvous in Oklahoma City because we are in Tulsa. We had our first gig. Mm-hmm. We figured, hey, we were doing well as as individual folk artists as a duo playing those same clubs and with an album we can make more money you know i would rather do anything than live it in la you know things were tough we didn't know if anything was going to happen for us sure and i was at a gas station and there was a guy pumping gas this is back in the days when people pumped gas (laughs) there was a gas station attendant and he looked too much like me and i sort of (laughs) i'm serious I saw I myself. It. Moment of realization. Yeah, yeah. I saw myself, yeah. and uh, yeah. Yeah, that's where, you know, that's, I'm out of here. That's cool. I wanted to tell you one of the Michael's car, he got rear-ended right as he's getting ready to leave L.A. Oh, so man. it was another two weeks, and I'm bouncing around the, you know, uh, Arizona, the Indian Reservation. And we would sometimes, you know, I'd talk to him on the phone, and uh, we ended up rendezvousing. At Hodavia, which is the oldest continuously inhabited village in North America on the Hopi Reservation, saw the snake dance. Oh. Ooh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> that was kind of like the culmination of a whole bunch of the time I've been there. And uh, Michael hadn't, yeah. but uh, he'd driven all the way from L.A. He had a hole in his floorboard and his muffler. His eyes looked like somebody had taken uh fingernail polish oh, and gosh. wiped them on his eyes and then took their fingers and dabbed them all over. It was awful. Yeah. So that was that was how we got out of LA. Got out of LA. And why? So how was the album received then? Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> no. Uh, it was, I mean, they thought we had left LA. And the good part of that, because uh, when you leave LA, they figure you've left the business. They left our publishing so Michael and I, everything we wrote from that point on, we owned the publishing. Well, um, that was not common back then. No, so that, no. Was, that was fortunate for you. A very fortunate yeah, for yeah. us. If they hadn't have uh, just voided our contract, all oh, these guys, you know, they're yeah. just kids. They're not Hollywood. Yeah. And when you think about it now, that was an incredibly forward-thinking thing that maybe happened on purpose, maybe by accident. But yeah. Boy, that yeah. uh, those that, publishing rights are a big deal, and yeah. those, that's come back to bite a lot of artists later on. They didn't, you know, they didn't realize what they'd gotten themselves into. Well, uh, Michael and I just, uh, I just talked to him right before you guys came, or as you guys were coming, and uh, we were talking about uh, a large check that Michael just got, that, and generally we both get them, mm-hmm. and I haven't gotten mine yet. So I was, well, why don't you call and and uh, see what's happening with your check? So I can find out about mine, <laughs> but that's what's that's really helped, and yeah. it's gotten better oh, yeah. and better and better. You wouldn't think one toke would still be drawing royalties, but it gets better every year. Well, I I jotted down a couple of things, and one of them that it's it's in the ending credits of a movie 
that I think is one of the best movies I've seen for a long time, St. Vincent. Oh, yeah. With, with yeah, Bill, uh, Murray. Bill Murray. And it is, after I read it, I remembered it rolling over the, the, the ending credits. Yeah, that's, that's very cool that you're getting it used and played and stuff. Oh, and, yeah. You know. And, uh, I hope you got paid for that was just absolutely wonderful. I bet it was. And, yeah. uh, Johnny Depp did Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. He used yes, one token. Yes. And yeah. that sent, uh, my family and I to Mexico for the first nice, time. So, nice. Uh, well, tell it, us about the origins of this song. I mean, let, let's, there's no two ways about it. That's your signature song. That's what you're known for. That puts you on the map. Uh, as far as popularity, music-wise, would you not agree? Uh, yeah, but it put us, uh, it was a double-edged sword. It, yeah. it put us on the map, but I didn't uh, particularly care for the place on the map that it put us. Because well. <laughs> uh, Michael and I essentially were ballad artists, yeah. and our music's fair, fairly serious, and uh, and One Toke was just kind of a novelty song. I, I get that. I think uh, I understand why you might feel that way. I like the song. I think. Oh, I, do I, too. I think it. I, I know why you might say it's a novelty song, but I, it means maybe more than that to me yeah. uh, as a, as a listener. I can't speak for everyone, but I think oh. it has more of a message than maybe you might imagine uh, if, You're if right. you think about it. But uh, from a, a professional standpoint, say you wrote one toke over the line, had a hit with it. What would you follow it up with? <laughs> the next song and the song after that, well, yeah. and, the song, and yeah. that's where Michael yeah. and I uh, ended up. You know, uh, maybe it didn't wouldn't... put you in the best place you wanted to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah I it, get that. Yeah. And well, it's really interesting that uh, down in L.A., we were, at that point we were assigned to uh, Buddha Kama Sutra. Ooh, don't guzzle all that. I won't. <laughs> Fill me up there. <laughs> there you go. Uh, thank you. Well, we will reiterate. This is a very good white burgundy we're drinking it today, is, but the best I've ever had, the only I've, I've ever had. What, what I was going to ask you, too, Tom, was Tarkio recorded on? Was that Good Sam Records then? No, that was uh, that was for uh, Buddha Kama Sutra. So, what did you have on Sam, uh, Good Sam then? That was down in L.A. That was down in L.A. Okay, okay, got you. So that wasn't A and M then, who you were writing for that you did your first album with. No, that was A and M, and down in L.A. was an A and M record, and all the publishing on that A and M still owns. Went to them. Okay, okay, I got you. I started getting royalties for an album I did in 1968. That's amazing. With uh, interest? No, no interest. <laughs> Darn. Well, that's interesting. The whole publishing and, and royalty side of the business is, I think, something that the average Joe doesn't have any concept of. But it's good for the artist. And, well, that. it's good for the artist if the artist can figure it out. I mean, it's a shell game. They keep moving stuff around. And yeah. uh, Michael and I, we started our own publishing company, and one toke was under that. Talking Beaver Music, and then BMG made us an offer for that we could not refuse. So uh, we sold our publishing. Still kept the writer's credits, but yeah. uh, we sold that to BMG, and BMG sold it to Sony, and Sony sold it to Universal. So I'm currently a Universal writer. I get my checks from Universal. Okay. But that's hard to track. Yeah. I mean, even for people who understand the business. Yeah. And uh, you have to realize that you're dealing with L.A. attorneys, that that's all they do is right. publishing. Yeah. So uh, yeah. if you've got a record company or a publishing company that's got one that has those attorneys, uh, an attorney in Rolla is probably not going to no. understand no. the whole 
ins and outs of publishing. So I, I told Brad I was going to tell this story since we're on the topic of one toke over the line. And uh, we both laughed about the the performance of the song on the Lord's Welk show. Yeah. And he described it as a new gospel song by Brewer and Shipley. <laughs> and... When my I had an older sister, seven years older, so uh, we grew up on gospel music in our home, and that's where I learned to sing harmonies. But new music was not really looked upon favorably when my older sister would bring it into the house. Yeah. And this, when the song One Toke Over the Line came, my dad didn't have any idea what a toke was. In fact, he swore to my sister that the lyric was one toe over the line, yeah. that this guy had gone too far. He had done something to press the law or something, and he had just stepped one toe over the line, sweet Jesus, and now he was paying for it or whatever. And they argued back and forth about what the lyric was, and I'll never forget how funny that argument was because he was never never going to admit that it wasn't one toe over the line. No, but even being one toke over the line, he was right about the rest of it. Right, right. You know, but, yeah. we, we wrote it at that point. Uh, we'd, we'd been on the road, and we'd had one too many Holiday Inns, one too many greasy cheeseburgers, one too many greasy backstage ladies. I mean, it was just, yeah. <laughs> it was just uh, too much of everything. Yeah. And that's, uh, well, I walked into the dressing room. I was, well, I was playing a, like a, a frailing rhythm, but on the a banjo rhythm on the guitar, and uh, I said to Michael, "God, Michael, I'm one toke over the line." We'd been out back before that, and uh, normally wasn't didn't get high before shows, but I did yeah. this when I was a little blitzed, and I said, "God, Michael, I'm one toke over the line," and he burst into song what I was playing, and in the dressing room that refrain came up, and then I went home that night and wrote two verses. And Michael and I got together the next day and uh, turned it into a song. Wow. But it was just, we just wanted to uh, make our friends laugh. Is all it yeah. was really for. You know what they say, Tom? Some songs, you uh, put them in the drawer and they hang around for two or three years and then they get done. And then on the other hand, some write themselves. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, uh, I, I'm always uh, just amazed when I talk to people like yourself that are songwriters that say, you know, I agonized over this, that, and the other thing. And uh, guess what? That wasn't the song that ended up any good anyway. It was the one that I wrote yeah. in the car on yeah. the way to <laughs> on the way to the grocery store or something, you know. And so, That's but I was one one thing I wanted to ask you about the whole Tarkio album. Was that the one song that you thought was going to be the single? No. Or which of these did you really think were were going to be the single from the album? Then, well, I was I was hoping it was going to be "Don't Want to Die in Georgia." I knew pretty well what the record company was going to do. We were playing at Carnegie Hall. And uh, we were open for Melanie, actually. It was funny because Michael had to help her tune her guitar. <laughs> she had a hit, but we didn't. But yeah. we were playing uh, Carnegie Hall, and we ran. We got a couple of encores, ran out of songs. Michael said, what are we going to do? I said, well, let's try one toke over the line. I said, really? I said, yeah, just trust me. So we went on on stage at Carnegie Hall, and I, I said, oh, well, we're going to do a song from our new album called I'd Like to Drop Acid with Jesus. <laughs> And, uh, <laughs> and and, and it's tr- I would actually. I, that was oh, I, yeah. I was not kidding. I was <laughs> I was serious. But everybody, it got real quiet, and then we we broke into one. Yeah, I bet it did. Carnegie Hall. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And our our record company president was uh, 
there, and he said, uh, that's a single, that's a single. Michael and I thought he was crazy, but we recorded it like it was, so it would be a single. And uh, we actually, we cut a verse out and kept the time down. And, uh, yeah. It was, yeah, but we... That's uh, funny. Yeah, but I was still hoping uh, Don't Want to Die in Georgia or one of the other, one of those others would have uh, made yeah. it. Because we could have followed up Don't Want to Die in Georgia. Sure, sure. Sure. And it's interesting that, uh, and to me, kind of sad because Michael and I had done an album. That was our second Buddha album, mm-hmm. and uh, our first album was called Weeds, and uh, it was it was a good album, and it was really hot and was incredibly well received. At that point, Michael and I ended up starting to do a lot of colleges, and we we essentially were. Uh, we were open for a lot of those San Francisco bands, Quick, mm-hmm. Quicksilver, and some of those, an acoustic duo, if you can imagine sure. that opening for Quicksilver. We told the sound guys, said, see how loud the band is? These are our guitars. This is our band. Yeah. We want to be as loud as they are. And they would do it, and so we could hold our own at festivals and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, so we had a good following, and Neil Bogart, he was the head of Buddha Kama Sutra, uh, he had been a New York label, and uh, they had the 1910 Fruit Gum Company and Kiss and all that stuff. And he was known as a singles bubblegum artist uh, producer, and he wanted to uh, change the look of it. So he, uh, we had a song called Rise Up Easy Rider, the first thing we recorded, actually. Uh, and it went uh, number one in every market he released it in. Uh, and the only markets he didn't was uh, L.A. and New York, and you got to have those to have a, have yeah. a hit record. Yeah. And we were bumming because we knew we could follow that up. Yeah. But it wasn't until one toke. But if you think about it, he went for Kiss and the 1910 Fruit Gum Company, so we give him one toke over the line, and he said, oh, that's the song. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he, couldn't, he couldn't hear Rise Up Easy Rider or yeah. some of those other things we were doing. That's funny. That would have made for a different career. What are some, maybe two or three, that stand out that were really memories that you thought and looked back and said, wow, this is, I'm really fortunate. We're really fortunate that we got to be here and do this. And maybe even audiences or, or something like that. Well, we, Michael and I had, we've been on stage with just about everybody. We opened for Black Sabbath in Cleveland <laughs> on Halloween. You know, uh, That's yeah, quite a tip. We, you can't get any weirder than oh that. God, open yeah. for Black try, Sabbath on, a, on a Halloween. Try this. 28 cities in 28 days opening for Jethro Tull's Passion Play. Oh, my God. Okay. That was, That's a little bizarre, too. Yeah. Well, it was uh, a bunch of 18-year-old girls on Quaaludes and Red Wine. So we just kind of went with that. You know, I mean, it was just, it was a horrible, horrible, horrible tour. We all grossed ourselves out. But what could you do? I mean, we were were opening for Jethro Tull. Got to roll with the punches, right? I got to ask you this because uh, we've got a lot of parrot heads that listen to this uh, podcast. Did you and Jimmy Buffett ever run into each other? We uh, opened for him in uh, Miami as uh, A1A was going up the charts. The place was packed and it was fun. I enjoyed Jimmy at that particular point. Considered A1A maybe one of the favorite albums by a lot of parrot heads. Uh, It's it's my favorite album, you know, so... uh, 
Pirate Looks at 40 and some of those great songs. Yeah, that's songs. a great song. And great song. We had a, a great opportunity to interview B. Bertles, one of the founding members of the Little River Band. Yeah. And he's, he tells a great story about Jimmy, that Jimmy came out, and he said, I'll never forget it because Jimmy came out before they played and introduced them. He said, you know, the opening act doesn't have to do that. They never yeah. do that. And he came out and introduced them and said, you guys, you're going to really, really love these guys. They're from Australia, and I think you're going to really like them. And Beeb said, we never forgot that. <laughs> we, you know, that was a gracious thing for him to do. Yeah. All right. Shall we shift to the final portion of the program? Shift Some to great whatever stories. you like. I guess if we need to, yes. Well, it's the three top picks. The three top three picks. Three top picks. Well, we're going to go music, but before we get into the three top picks, I do want to remind Bon Vivants that anywhere you want to listen to music, even streaming music, streaming videos, streaming movies, we all have these apps on our smart devices, but you can do that at your local library these days too. You can stream that kind of stuff with your library card. Uh, our local library is the Missouri River Regional Library. They're in Jefferson City and they're a sponsor of the podcast and we so appreciate that. But wherever you are, check out your local library and I bet you will find a myriad of services like streaming, audio, and video. And they'll even hold it for you. They'll help you order it, download it onto your device. And so uh, check out your local library. And thanks to Missouri River Regional Library for sponsoring the uh, the podcast. Well, so, can, can I uh, put in a plug? When they're jump at, right in when there. They're, when they're at their library online, uh, go to uh, onetoketom.com. There you go. Onetoketom.com. And, yeah. Tom, we will share all of your social media links and stuff on our uh, okay. Facebook page, too. So well, I've, yeah. I've been a story. Storyteller. That's my. I'm not a great singer. I'm a pretty good musician. Well, no, I'm not a really good musician. I'm a pretty good songwriter. I just strum guitar. Yeah. But uh, I've been doing television for a lot of years, and yeah. I, you know, producing and directing. I'm essentially a storyteller, and so that's what I've done with the One Toke Tom site. I I tell stories. A lot of them have to do with Vern Shipley and whatever. And a lot of them just have to do with my life. Yeah. But people seem to really be liking it. And uh, it's also One Toke Tom on uh, Facebook. Okay. I think folks that are, if they're Burn Shipley fans or just like stories, they might enjoy it. And I've, recently I've been taking uh, some of the Burn Shipley songs from our new album, uh-huh. uh, the ones that, that we own. We've done it for our, under our own uh, production company mm-hmm. and uh, turned those songs into music videos. Well, I don't want to jump ahead then too fast. Tell us a little bit about your video production experience, how you got into that, and, and kind of what you've been doing with I know you are you were working for the, uh, what is now called Missouri S&T, and their yeah. video production unit and stuff like that. You're since retired from that, I understand, but you're still doing a lot of freelance stuff. Yeah. Uh, there was a period there where, uh, well, when I met Jan, my, mm-hmm. my wife. 1976, the 4th of July, the Bicentennial. The Bicentennial. And uh, uh, from that point on, she became my my life. It was real fireworks. Yeah, well, and uh, <laughs> I, I finally told Michael, I said, I can't keep doing, you know, I've got I've got a lady, uh, this is the one. And, yeah. and we were on the backside of our hits and all that stuff. Sure. So uh, there wasn't any place to go up. And I told Michael, I said, yeah, I can't be on the road anymore. It wasn't like I quit the band. I just quit the road. Right. And if you quit the road, you're not doing it with the band anymore. <laughs> right. And so it's not like we had a big fight, but uh, I just, that's what I did. Yeah. And uh, so what am I going to do with my living? And we there was a low-power TV station started in Rolla. 
So uh, I went to work there, and they knew you know I had production experience, sure. and they you know being part of Brewer and Shipley uh, gets you in a lot of doors where you normally wouldn't. <laughs> and so I started doing television, and then when the station folded, uh, the equipment was still there. So I just talked to the guys. I said, well, can I use the equipment? I'll give you a piece of what I get for ind- ind- independent stuff. And that worked. With some of that equipment, I did a, uh, a documentary called uh, Treehouse, an Ozark story about an old river rat lived in a treehouse down on the Hoosa, on Hoosa Creek. Neat. And that became a huge success. In fact, I got a Cine Golden Eagle for it. Uh, Jan and I picked the uh, award up in Washington, a big event. And, uh, well, the first one was uh, something, Cousteau Society. Mm-hmm. The second one was Tom Brokaw for his uh, Island of the Sorrow, Island of Tears, I think it was called, mm-hmm. about Ellis Island. Right. And the third one was Treehouse and Ozark Story, Oral History of the Ozarks Project. It's a pretty good company, Tom. Yeah, 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 yeah that's, Congratulations. I, I, I waved my hand on that. It, we, Jen and I had a not-for-profit, yeah. and we were doing some Ozark stories. I did one on the Dillards. You remember the? They just lived about thirty miles from here. Yeah, and uh, I did one there, and all of a sudden I started getting offers to do uh, independent uh, industrial videos. Yeah, you know yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah, and uh, that went along pretty well. Jane and I were doing real well. In fact, she and I were partners in the production company, and then healthcare came along, yeah. and she had yeah. to get a real job with real people. Yeah. But I continued on, and uh, then uh, they offered me a job at the university. I wasn't teaching. I was just doing their marketing. Sure. Their marketing videos uh, for whatever project they were into. And I fell in love with a group called Engineers Without Borders. And they sent me oh, I was in San Salvador. They sent me to uh, Bolivia twice, mm-hmm. uh, to the Amazon, and then out onto the Altiplano, which is like a high mountain desert at mm-hmm. Thirteen five, I think. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the second time I went uh, back was uh, to shoot a little village in uh, Takachia, Bolivia, up in the Andes. And it was it's the happiest place I've ever been. Yeah. You know, the people were just, they didn't have much, but uh, we were essentially helping them separate the good water from the bad water right. and uh, helping them build uh, biosand filters mm-hmm. so that the kids wouldn't die of... Uh, dysentery, dysentery and stuff like that. Yeah. You know. Water quality is huge; is a huge issue worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. But an issue that isn't brought up: uh, what happens when you do the inf- uh, reduce the infant mortality rate? You either have to instantly reduce the birth rate, or you're going to end up very shortly with malnutrition right. throughout the the community. So those things aren't thought about. Yeah. I, I really yeah. considered that when we were doing it. But I fell in love with the place and. Uh, community of maybe 40 people. Aymara and Quechua, those are the two main mm-hmm. languages in, in uh, Bolivia. I was sitting there the first night. There's these two peaks, incredibly steep peaks, and from behind them comes uh, a full moon where there's the Southern Cross. Wow. And, so, and for the, from that point on, when I'd come home, we'd have a full moon. I, it was an Aymara moon to yeah, me. Yeah. And so uh, I had this little melody that I had, my Aymara moon, and uh, hanging with the Southern Cross. And I sang that for Michael one day when he was down here, and uh, we ended up recording it. 
And that's the last recording we've done. came out really nice, just Michael's acoustic guitar and two vocals. And I did a music video for it that's on well, cool. called My Mar Moon. And it's uh, on my site. Bon Vivants, we will tag all that stuff on the website. So go look it up and you can hear the song and see the video. So, well, very good. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that's uh, probably a great creative outlet for you to be able to move from the music to the video uh, production world. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've been really a lucky guy. The lady I ended up making my partner or becoming my partner and the place that we came out here, uh, life is so good. Uh, it's better than I deserve. Is the way I lo- <laughs> That's the way I look at it. This wow. is really- All right. Let's get to the three top picks. Uh, three top picks category. This episode is three top songs from your the year you graduated from high school. So this is going to be interesting. And it can be that actual year or maybe something that impacted you or influenced you during those high school years. We're not too picky about it. But, uh, Tom, what we'll do is we'll let you go first. We go one at a time. And we'll go around in a circle. And uh, just tell us what it is and, more importantly, why you chose it, uh, why, why it meant something to you. So uh, right off the bat, uh, it could be anyone by this artist, but I will pick uh, – Blueberry Hill. Okay. And uh, that was a huge influence on me for two reasons. First of all, the the style of piano playing I'd never heard before. Yeah. And also the vocals. I'd never heard he spoke in such a cool way. You know, his just his language was so cool. And it took years before I realized that's just a New Orleans accent. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. That's yeah. Domino. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Fat, Fats, was, Fats was my guy yeah. uh, when I was in high school. Is there a name for that style of, I mean, other than jazz or blues or piano in New playing? Orleans. Just New Orleans. Uh, well, kind of look, New Orleans-ish. Well, yeah, rock. Ish. It is New Orleans. Listen yeah. to he, uh, uh, Alan Toussaint, any of the, the, you know, Dr. John. Dr. John. Yeah. All of those great uh, piano players. Right. Uh, we almost lost Fats in the uh, uh, in Katrina. Oh yeah, but he had uh, the club where he started off. He bought it, and yeah. uh, it was it was still a, a going club. Well, Jerry Lee Lewis had the same style. He had adapted it more, maybe out of the gospel stuff, but uh, turned it into that that riffle. I guess you know. Yeah, well, it was uh, Jerry Lee Lewis was not a New Orleans. Piano no, no, player. he wasn't. Was, but he uh, was a Louisiana boy. Yeah, but he was not. Uh, yeah, he was not one of those no, guys no, that had was, that Louisiana. Right. Groove. Yeah. Uh, was, yeah. And rest in peace, Jerry Lee. Yes, and by we, the way, oh, yeah. I, I take that very him. personally because Jerry Lee and I shared a birthday. Oh, you do? <laughs> we did. September 29th. <laughs> so I kind of approached this from a different uh, angle. And I, I thought at first, uh, Brad and I talked about this because we lived through a transition in music. I guess we all did. But when we were coming out of some classic rock years into the disco years, and, you know, disco with by classic rock people was frowned upon most of the time. But there were a couple of good songs my senior year. Uh, Dancing Queen by ABBA was one of them. And I've always liked ABBA. And I think Dancing Queen is a good song, but it's kind of a, that disco beat. And uh, so that was one of well, them. Well, it that, got another life. Too. Yeah, it did. The uh, Mamma Mia franchise also revived it. Well, um, uh, uh, ABBA has always, since I first heard them, has been one of my very favorite groups. I think they're great. And you talk about harmony. You know, talk about a great harmony oh, yeah. group. They're great singers. Well, yeah. I like big records. 
and that's why I was like Springsteen, and that's, you know, yeah. being a folky that plays acoustic guitar, you'd think I'd like the simple stuff. In fact, Michael does, yeah. but I like big records. That's what I like yeah. about Springsteen, uh, oh, Born in the U.S., going back oh, to, yeah. to yeah. Born huge, to Run. Huge album. And then on the trop rock scene, I didn't realize this, Bradley, uh, Margaritaville was the top hit in 1977. It was. And then... Um, that one's had some uh, staying power. Yeah, it has. It's a billion-dollar song. <laughs> Which one was Mar- that? Margaritaville. Wasted away it in Margaritaville. And then on the pop scene, there was a group called Pablo Cruz that I really liked back then. They had this kind of Calypso, Caribbean vibe, uh, pop sound. Maybe Miami sound is what I'm I'm trying to describe. But uh, What You Gonna Do When She Says Goodbye mm-hmm. was a Pablo Cruz hit. So none of those made my list, but I kind of wanted to give a – I kind of wanted to frame the time frame and, and how music was changing at that time. But uh, my first one is from a classic album, and it's Fleetwood Mac, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. It's from the Rumors album, which almost every cut on that album was a hit. But Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow was one of the top hits of 1977. I was already an old man by then. Well, (laughs) you you have a few years on us, but we also enjoyed some of the same music. I know that. So That's why I kind of thought it would be fun to to do the the top three picks because we've got different years. So that's going to be fun. So I, I graduated in 79. So as he is kind of sliding into the disco years two years later they're kind of sliding out of it although you wouldn't know it by the top 10 and i'm using billboard yeah although i i don't get it because i'm looking at this billboard top 100 i said there's no rock songs on here i mean where's acdc and you know highway to hell should have been on there i don't know what the criteria was i used for billboard but anyway what i did was i looked at songs that came out in 79 but have so much staying power now. Right. You know, you can go in and you can hear any cover band and they'll do some of these songs. One of them that we've just heard, if you've got a good fiddle player, was Devil Went Down to Georgia. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, you get somebody that can really smoke a violin, man. There's one that holds up big time from 1979. Yeah, it's a great so, song. My graduation was 20 years earlier than that. So there was no fiddles. No fiddles. Not Pat Salmono, Little Richard. I, I grew up in, you know, just outside of Cleveland. Sure. So I literally went to Alan Freed's first rock and roll show. Oh, wow. Yeah. We, yeah. Would, we would go. It was wonderful. We would, I would listen to the radio at night. Yeah. And uh, there was, it would be, you know, the hits up until, I forget, nine o'clock or something like right. that. And then he would go on and start playing rhythm and blues. Well, the rhythm and blues players were Fats Domino and Little Richard and Bill Doggett and yeah. Platters and whatever. And so we were all listening to that. And he throws a rhythm and blues uh, show on the on the east side, which was the the African-American part right. of town, yeah. part of Cleveland. And the hall fills up with a bunch of uh, white teenagers like myself from, uh, you know, the, the surrounding towns. <laughs> yeah. Shortly after that, he held a show called, and he called it a rock and roll show. Yeah. And I went to that too. But the people that were playing, it was Fats Domino, sure. Richard, yeah. and, and the, the Platters. 
years. Oh, uh, man, yeah. yeah. Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, I kind of envy you getting to be on that. You were on the cutting edge of that that move into from the 40s, 50s, and then into what we know now as rock and roll. And, yeah. And even that Motown sound. Uh, the, talk about harmonies and harmony singers and background singers. And, yeah, great the movie, music. The movie American Hot Wax kind of captured that yeah. that yeah. era, you yeah. know, those first rock and roll shows. And they had to be <laughs> – they had police coming in. They busted they them. Well, and that thing you do uh, a little thing bit. You, that thing you, know, you do. A few years later. but yeah. uh, And then the, the musical Hairspray was along the same lines as that too. Right. You know, uh, that Baltimore sound and – even mistaking black artists for white artists because, or, or, or vice versa, because they were trying to yeah. sound like each other. And, uh, in, in the, the years of the, segregation, if parents wouldn't know who they were listening yeah. to. So it, yeah, it was in the white so, artists ripping off the, the black uh, artists. Certainly. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So like Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Your second one. My yeah. second one, uh, would probably, well, without a doubt, it would be, uh, well, we'll say good golly, Miss Molly. Anything that, anything little Richard, <laughs> little Richard did. man. And I think he's undervalued. Yeah. Oh, I my think God. He, I, you know, for what he did, even, you know, even people like Prince will tell you how much he influenced them. Oh, yeah. So much earlier. And, uh, he was ripped off. I mean, talk about people ripping off his oh, yeah. style and his, even his moves and stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I saw him, uh, someplace and I was really impressed because he had aluminum shoes <laughs> and aluminum had just started to become a big thing back there. And uh, he had aluminum shoes. I thought I was, yeah, in high school. I thought, oh, he's so cool. Well, he was a performer. Oh, I mean, that oh, man, he was God. a performer. Yes, he was. He was an entertainer, yeah. not just a musician. He was an entertainer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But he, he could light a crowd on fire. With great music, yeah. too, on top yeah, of that. Yeah, and sound all. good doing it. Exactly. Very cool. Uh, my second one, then, is it's Steve Miller, Fly Like an Eagle. And again, I'm the, the, the single is good, but there's a story behind this one for me. So we um, had a buddy in high school whose parents were psychiatrists in town, and they let him pretty much raise himself. They had a very lax parenting style. And part of their home was a garage that was attached, but they had turned it into his bedroom. And it was sort of like his pad. And it had a separate... They didn't even have a key to the place. They couldn't get in there unless he let them in. And so it was sort of like party central <laughs> black lights and he had he was the first one to have a water bed and black lights he was the first one first place i ever heard the album fly like an eagle steve now Miller. was it on was it quadraphonic it was he had the best stereo of anybody in town speakers all over but this album was pressed on white glow-in-the-dark vinyl Ooh! and so when you pulled it out of the album sleeve, it glowed. So that was one cool thing about it. And then when you set the needle down, a lot of times when it was played on the radio, they would not play the intro part. Yeah. That. Yeah. Because that took time. Yeah. Yeah, that took time. But that was the cool part of the song. <laughs> and we would all, we would just kind of like be, uh, well, how do I put this delicately? We would be uh, lazing around in the pad, and that would come on. It was kind of like, wow, man, this is really cool. So that uh, Fly Like an Eagle makes my list. Well, my second and one. stands the test of time. My second one, these guys had a great year in 79, but one of the songs in particular will be played for a month every day for the rest of time. And I'm talking Earth, Wind, and Fire. I love those guys. Great band. But you talk about staying power. 
September is played every day, every year, ever since it was a hit. And that's why I, I picked it because, it, first of all, I love September. It's a great, great song. Yeah, I just is. love it. But they had After the Love is Gone and Boogie Wonderland also were in the top, the Billboard Top 100. But I just love their harmonies. Uh, and you, and they, you talk about showmen. No kidding. Oh, my gosh. You talk about it. I've never seen Earth, Wind, and Fire, but I would have loved to have seen them back in the day. That's that would have been fun. Too, man. Yeah. Their band was tight. Yeah. So, anyway, again, I'm talking about longevity of, of, of music yeah. that will keep going on. On yeah. the song September on any station in September for the for yeah. the rest of time. Yeah, yeah. All, All right, right, Tom. Third one. Wow. My favorite, other favorite group from the period was the Platters. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and it was their vocalizations. And I'm trying to remember the song right now. Well, you probably put any number of songs from the Platters in that spot. Very the, cool. The Great Pretender. Yeah, it's a real. Uh, oh yeah, smoke, it, smoke gets in your eyes. Oh gosh, they did have a list, didn't they? Wow, there was some great music there. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, only you. That's a good one. All right. Only you. Yeah, Clyde McFadder and the Platters. There you oh. go. There so, you yeah, great vocals back then. Man, they could sing. A decade or two later and uh, see where that affected Brewer and Shipley. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of harmony bands, actually, you know. Yeah. Um, so I want to do a couple of honorable mentions. From 77, Carry On My Wayward Son was one. Kansas. Kansas. And uh, that's a great harmony song, actually, if you listen to it. I, I love that song. And uh, Walk This Way from Aerosmith kind of was a groundbreaking and then adapted later into a rap version. It kind of transcended itself well, uh, into it, a rap it version. It also kick-started Aerosmith. Yeah. After they got sobered up and yeah. started making music again, yeah. they did that video, and everybody thought, well, this is going to be so stupid. It it took their whole career in another well, in another yeah. whole yeah. direction. The, the one that really turned them around. Was uh, was it Amy's got it? Who got a gun? Janie's got a gun. Janie's got, 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 got a gun. But that song, all of a sudden, they were socially relevant. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, Stephen not, Tyler's vocals are amazing. Oh my I mean, god, the guy, the guy well, is yeah. And he's, yeah, they're a, they're a tight band too. Yeah, they got great musicians. And yeah. he's a great performer. Yeah, he is. Yeah. So and they did some soundtrack work also that helped them oh, quite yeah. a bit. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, yeah. Take my then, breath away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, the third one, I may have to surrender my man card on this one, but Weekends in New England by Barry Manilow. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, that's, that is sweet. It's cute. It's a great song. <laughs> you're cute, Keith. Well, <laughs> you're a pretty man. <laughs> I, all I can say is it, uh, it, wor- is, it worked for me a couple of times. Hey, Let's put it that in way. our era, Barry Manilow had his place. He did. I won't tell you where that place that, is. That place was in the back seat. It was usually. in the back seat of the car. That's right. That's right. Really? Well. You were going with girls that w- wouldn't say, you like Barry Manilow. <laughs> no, that's right. None of the girls that, uh, none of the girls I played that for Free had dude, any objection. Put my bought bra strap back together if you would, please. <laughs> I'm out of here. Uh, <laughs> all right. But my number one, uh, my first uh, is no surprise to people who know me, and that is Hotel California by of the Eagles. Of course. Uh, not only the song itself, which has all sorts of mystery behind it, but the album, again, numerous hits off of that album. And even though songs that didn't weren't considered popular or commercial hits are phenomenal songs. It's just one of my favorite albums of all time. Oh, my God, yes. Michael yeah. and I toured with them a lot. Oh, gosh. Oh, you did? Toured with uh, Eagles a lot. We toured with Linda Ronstadt a whole bunch. Yeah. 
Yeah, her the guys from her band, you know, uh, Henley at that particular point with Henley was drumming. Yeah, for and they were just yeah. Henley and Fry both played in her band yeah. before they formed the Eagles. And that's, yeah, that's, that's right. Well, I'd, yeah. I'd met him at the Troubadour, and then uh, you know when they were touring. Who do you remember from the Troubadour that just stood out and you went? Maybe they were just getting started. And you everybody, went, everybody, <laughs> uh, kid that I met in uh, Orange County, a place called the uh, the Paradox finally came up to uh, play the true roar and that was jackson brown oh. <laughs> he's a poet and i'm a lyrics guy and that's one of the reasons not only is a great musician but i love his lyrics just a poet and uh his show yeah. tom was unique yeah it was. he had Keith, 27 27 guitars him. they were all laid out on the stage they were all sitting up and they were all tuned to a different to something different yeah and it was this bizarre sort of call it out sort of a show where they would call stuff out and somebody do on the on the piano and he'd yeah. go pick up a guitar <laughs> he and had a guitar play. he had a guitar tech that was helping him keep track of stuff too but it was a unique show and it was just him jackson was much better just he and his piano or he and acoustic guitar yeah. and that it, was and all that other shit hit was fun, after yeah. hit after hit yeah. after hit you it talked was, about a string of hits no kidding it yeah. was amazing it was amazing the yeah. only one i was going to mention though uh yeah. last would be oh i uh, forgot your last the, one. the greatest party song ever and it will keep going on why YMCA happened to be in 1979. That is a good old village people. And then our good friend B. Burbles and uh, Little River Band yeah. had two charters. Yeah. They had a couple of their big ones. They had Lonesome Loser and they had uh, Lady uh, both, in 79. So yeah. those are a couple of The other one, though, that is a consummate party song. We are family. Yes, Sister Sledge. Sister Sledge. You can't help yeah. but you know have gatherings and. and well, that we is are the family. heart of disco, right there. You're getting into the the, the YMCA and uh, we are family. Is, well, of this is, list, uh, Keith, uh, four of them are Donna Summer songs. Well, there you go. So. You know, yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, uh, Breakfast in America was in '79. I love Super that was, Tramp. That, that was, was that was a big one. That was my college music. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys have never asked me about uh, the biggest thing in music that I've ever done. Uh oh, we All did. Right. Uh, we did a we bunch. Failed. We, we opened uh, a first rock concert at uh, Arrowhead, opening for uh, Elton. And uh, wow. yeah, that was. In fact, I looked up. I saw. My face on the jumbotron, <laughs> the jumbotron. I realized my eye was bigger than my entire body. Yeah. <laughs> but well, uh, that is pretty cool. Yeah, that was cool. And Carnegie Hall twice was cool. Yeah, but, but the coolest was one of Levon's rambles. Levon Helm. Yeah. The band. The band. Yeah. Well, he would. Are you familiar with his rambles? I'm guess oh, not. Oh, up there in Woodstock, he had. Uh, that was his, his ranch. Yeah, at yeah. his ranch, at his big barn house and whatever with a full-blown stage. The final thing, he did the wait, of course. Oh, and yeah. he invited Michael and I uh, oh, up to sing the wait. You, with get, it. A, you get to do a verse, huh? I, I, we, we, we sang uh, the wait with Levon. Nice. To me, that was heavier than oh. uh, Carnegie Hall or any of those. Oh, uh, oh my God. That makes a hair stand up on my head. Well, you got Elton John. But Elton John was no lead on hell, you know. <laughs> you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. All right, we got to wrap it, guys. We do. This has been too it. much fun. This has been absolutely thank the you, best, Tom. Tom we we'll, cannot thank you enough for yeah. for giving oh, us the thank time. Thank you for and, coming down. All hey, right, everyone. Bon vivants, we love you. Please, uh, please remember to share us uh, yeah. out there to all of your buddies and uh, like it, rate it, re- yep. like it, and rate it, and we will see you next time, Mister Inlow. Cheers. Cheers. 
We Like That Too is produced as a labor of love for the enjoyment of Bon Vivants everywhere. To get information about our bottles and links to our guests, go to our website, welikethatpodcast.com. Tune in to new episodes by subscribing on Apple, Spotify, and other popular streaming apps. Please remember to rate, review, and share. And be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at We Like That Podcast. So everybody, hey, remember the numbers. One bottle, two good friends, and three top picks because we We like like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too. We like that too.